talk to Rochelle and become an underwriter on KMUD because I know people are tuning in right now from all over the country. So you will get your unique business or service out there to people who have a certain outlook about things and they appreciate this KMUD programming. However, that's not nearly enough to keep us going. So anybody from far away who enjoys the opportunity to hear Dr. Pete and ask him questions, do go to kmud.org and hit the big Donate Now button. And you all appreciate it very much. Oh, and by the way, the views and opinions expressed throughout the broadcast day on Redwood Community Radio are those of the speakers, not necessarily the station staff, underwriters, or volunteers. And it may not even be the speaker's point of view. They might just be reading something or saying something for someone else, or maybe they're pulling your leg or highly sarcastic or speaking very, very metaphorically. You really never know these days. Whoops, I put my music down too soon. I had the wrong thing lined up here. We'll have Ask Your Herb Doctor in just a second. And the doctors are in the house. Welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. It's uh, October the 16th, 2020. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never heard the shows before, they run every third Friday of the month from 7 till 8 p.m. Uh, we're both licensed medical herbalists who uh, see people with various uh, health conditions and advise uh, dietary and nutritional supplement intake as a way forward for an alternative to good health. Um, we do this monthly radio show uh, as a scientific endeavor, really, to bring facts to the situation, to explore new alternatives, and to present the discussions uh, with references to back up. Uh, what I see and I hear uh, is a concerted effort um, by the fact-checkers against the quote-unquote conspiracists that are supposedly wrecking everything around us. But uh, let's keep that out of the uh, out of the question for this evening's show. Uh, again, this is not a political show. Uh, we just really want to get to the truth and get people to go visit 
places to find information, to read the information for themselves, and to do their own fact-checking. Uh, as responsible citizens of this republic, uh, we are certainly charged with being responsible, and that does have a political implication in terms of holding our representatives to account, and all those people over us that would exert authority over us. Um, I know I've quoted it many times about uh, being ever vigilant and not submitting to on authority unquestioningly. unquestioningly. Um, that, unfortunately, has happened quite a few times in the past in many different occasions, and I think World War II was never a greater example of unquestioning the authority of the day where many very good and true Germans with good hearts and good spirits just blindly went along with Hitler's dictates. Um, so anyway, enough of that. Uh, once again, we are very pleased to be joined by with Dr. Pete. And uh, Dr. Pete, you with us? Yes. Hi. Well, thank you for giving your time again, as you have done many, many times so far. Um, would you just, for those people who perhaps have not heard you before or heard of you, just describe your academic and professional background so people can understand um, where you're coming from. First, I was um, in the humanities, uh, teaching English and, and painting and uh, literature, uh, and then I uh, went back to graduate school uh, in 1968 to 72 at the University of Oregon uh, to study biology. Uh, especially physiology, reproductive aging. Uh, and since then, I've been uh, uh, studying uh, uh, everything related to uh, all of those subjects. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, from your perspective, I know that you've had some very personal uh, confrontations with authoritarians and the uh, concept of authoritarianism, which I think in academic circles is very rife. Uh, I know we've talked about in the past the uh, process to becoming a doctor, not just in this country, but in many countries around the world, I think is so stemmed in competition and hierarchy that the author authoritarian mentality, I think, creeps into it easily because people, number one, naturally don't want to be bested. I think most people don't want to be bested, and most people want to go along with the professor's view of something to, oh, I don't know, if you like, suck up to them so that they are seemingly interested and they get better commendation or, or chances at, uh, you know, PhD research down the, down the road. Um, I found it quite interesting, the, and we'll go back over this again um, with the one person in particular, but the, the World Health Organization... I know we've talked about this before as well as a, a quote-unquote authoritarian uh, machine, and I think um, that's certainly got plenty of truth in it, and I think people can go check themselves for the facts around the World Health Organization and who's behind it, who's implementing the policies. Uh, a lot of the policies coming out on COVID uh, have been mandated, especially in the early days, by the World Health Organization, and I know the whole Bill Gates uh, scenario tied up with the World Health Organization and the money and everything else does tend to uh, skew um, the ideal that I think the World Health Organization wanted to portray. But the fact that in the recent news in the last few days, um, and it's not the main 
it's not the main spokesperson, the person who's supposed to be had uh, uh, terrorist um, uh, allegiance to in the past before they became uh, a member of the WHO, um, but actually a, m a more recent uh, gentleman who's basically um, stating that the lockdown orders need to be lifted if they haven't already been stated by the WHO to be uh, injurious to the population. So I guess my first comment was the uh, what you thought on the lockdown and the basis for it. But then the article that I found in my inbox this morning and somebody wanting me to sign it, which was called the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, where three professors, uh, Sunepta Guptra, um, an epidemiologist at Oxford University, and then Martin Kaldorf, an epidemiologist at Oxford University, and then lastly, Jay Bhattachara, who is a, a doctor and PhD, a public health policy expert and professor at Stanford, uh, declared that the cure uh, for this in terms of the lockdown, uh, lockdown has been worse than the disease for society as a whole. Uh, and that those lockdowns cause isolation and cessation of business worldwide. And actually what they were defending, uh, or defending this statement with, was saying that essentially protecting the elderly and the high mortality risk cases uh, was their goal. And they stated that there was a, a thousandfold more susceptibility uh, to poor outcome risks in this community after contracting COVID. And I know you've got your own measure of the numbers, which are nowhere near the numbers that we're told, um, but that these, this population specifically are people that they're wanting to keep protected, um, and they're actually going to use the court of law, as we'll talk about a little bit later with another lawyer. Um, so what do you know about this, um, this declaration, and do you think that the uh, traction uh, that it could gain could be a game changer here? Um, there have been several signs that uh, the general situation is changing. Uh, uh, England, uh, the people in the, the WHO and the CDC have all acknowledged that the uh, reporting of COVID deaths uh, is probably uh, over-reported, over overestimated, uh, and uh, uh, these three people at the, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, uh, point out that uh, the, the best numbers are probably down around 25 to 30,000 uh, deaths in the season, uh, much lower than ordinary flu uh, deaths per year. Uh, and and uh, the, the fact that there are people uh, in uh, government uh, who are now uh, qualifying uh, their really uh, fraudulent earlier statements, uh, I think it shows that they see the danger in trying to continue uh, to uh, perpetrate the, the fraud at the same high level. Uh, and there are uh, groups of lawyers getting together. Uh, for example, uh, Tom Renz in Ohio uh, is suing the governor uh, to uh, show the evidence that uh, he, he used for uh, imposing uh, the restrictions, the lockdown and the mask wearing. Uh, and uh, he uh, is presenting evidence of uh, basically fraudulent activity. And 
the fact that the court is accepting it shows that it can't can't be in the fantasy world. It can't be a one of the conspiratorial theories. It's absolutely factual, and so the. There's going to be some kind of a crisis when the judge makes a decision that they have to turn over whatever evidence they based their decision on, and they will probably just say that they were following orders from the CDC, and so the CDC will be ordered to turn over any evidence that they had showing that it was actually a very dangerous thing that would justify suspending traditional public health principles, introducing policies that had never been used historically that violated basic public health principles. The originally through history, sick people were quarantined, and it's a complete reversal of all all reason to quarantine healthy people. And so I think the the threat of being exposed in court is causing some governments to take a defensive. Retreat and start putting out some of the facts in a in a week. Week manner. Given given that this could be just the biggest ever fraud case ever perpetrated, which I'm, a lot of people are really on board with it. I think because um, I think what really doesn't make any sense, and I've always I've said it since February March, is that if this disease was a very fatal disease and people were just dying and it was happening um, across the board, then all of the mandates from lockdown and social distancing, closing of businesses, and the whole economic disaster it caused would be justified because the the, the opposite, of, opposite of that would be contracting this needlessly because you weren't isolating and, uh, and dying from it. But One of their justifications was that the hospital system would be overloaded, but in actuality, uh, hundreds of hospitals are in danger of bankruptcy. In the first half of the year, already 42 had closed. Right, because they weren't doing anything else, right, and nothing was happening. Uh, Yeah, they were so empty that they weren't making enough money to stay in business. So yeah. that whole thing of overloading the system, uh, demanding a lockdown, that, that was just a, 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 nothing but a fraud. And, and this, uh, don't, we, don't we think that the uh, New York Governor Cuomo uh, was part and parcel uh, in driving that in that direction where 
the underprivileged um, served in the areas there of New York that were treated with ventilators were dying because, they've, as we've since shown, and has since been revealed that ventilation is the worst thing you can do because it's really not a ventilator situation. So the people that were dying in the hospitals that were getting crowded were getting forced into a situation that was really not in their interest and with the outcome was very poor. But and, in and those countries and places... ...is using yeah. a situation to uh, get rid of, of public expenses on schools, he says... Uh, uh, who, who needs all of these buildings? <laughs> they can do it on computers. Uh, and he immediately uh, uh, drew on uh, Eric Schmidt as a, a, a guide to changing the education system, the health system, uh, and the economy of the state uh, in line with projections that uh, Eric Schmidt and others had been making more than a year before the pandemic was even heard of, they were projecting that a pandemic with a coronavirus could be used as an excuse for destroying the old economy and turning it into the extremely lucrative online substitute for education, health care. And, uh, and who, who was it that said, we don't need all, what are we going to do with all these buildings, or we don't need all these buildings? That was Governor Cuomo. Oh, Governor Cuomo said that, right. Okay, so just um, just uh, looking forward, I don't, I don't see any reason unless there is some significant action in the law courts and there is a smell that needs to be investigated and more and more people get to hear about it from those outlets that are prepared to publish it because the whole fact-checking thing is going into overdrive. Um, the, the sense that this fall and winter is the impending second wave, I mean, because we, the only really uh, comparable situation is the 18 uh, flu epidemic, right, or pandemic. So if, if the worst is yet to come and the econ economics of many countries has already been severely uh, impacted, then this fall and this winter should finish it off uh, financially. And just imagining this as an economic, an economic exercise to um, bring about a new order to a situation worldwide in one go. It's unfortunate it seems so conspiratorial that most people don't want to believe it. And I think it's a little bit like the uh, concentration camps in 3945, uh, the Second World War, that people didn't want to believe it. It, could, it was too, too, uh, too much to believe could be possible. But I think, I think given the numbers of people which are consistently proven, um, that there is the, the the thing the lawyer um, in Ohio was bringing out was that dying from and dying with COVID were two very different um, results, end results, but that people dying with and dying from were lumped together, and the actual numbers of people that actually died of COVID was significantly less than a normal flu year. So we know yeah, we know more, there's more definitely than a tenfold difference. Yeah. Well, the CDC did state, you know, I, I mentioned this on the last show, that 94%, and this is CDC statistics, 94% of people who were labeled as 
COVID deaths had comorbidities? Uh, yeah, sometimes those comorbidities were traumatic uh, deaths. But if they had had a positive test showing uh, that they had been infected, even though they weren't sick, uh, then if they were killed in an accident, uh, it was put down as COVID-related because they did have a positive test and were dead. Okay, you're listening to Ask Your Dr. K. Moody, Garberville, 91.1 FM, from 7.30 to 8 o'clock. It's a live call-in. Uh, people are invited to call in with questions related to the ongoing situation with COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, guest speaker. So from 7.30 to 8 o'clock, the number to call is 707-923-3911. Uh, but Dr. Pete, again, I think, I think the only thing that came out of the Great Barrington Declaration and the logical scientific truth is that the elderly and immune compromised are at greater risk anyway because this is more like a influenza that in some people becomes a serious situation and it's namely those who are already uh, you know uh, morbidly affected with something else and so the um what do you because again it's come out time and time again that these people were placed in care homes people that were uh, basically positive, were put in care homes and rapidly brought the numbers of people in the care homes down because they spread the infection and obviously those people had no real resistance to it. So in terms of isolating the elderly, uh, do, you think, do you think that's common sense? Oh, oh uh, for sure. Um, yeah. Simply uh, protecting uh, the vulnerable people is... Right. Something that has always been done. Yeah. yeah, so there's absolutely nothing uh, conspiratorial about that. Uh, I think the fact checkers can happily find the facts for that. Um, so, in terms of this um, de- declaration that these three professors are heading up and getting signatures worldwide for, uh, and the um, tort action or class action lawsuits. Uh, it's more than one, but I know the Ohio uh, lawyer was um, recently represented, and I'll give out the links. Uh, for both of the YouTube and BitChute uh, videos of John Rappaport, uh, as well as the YouTube um, interview um, with the lawyer, who clearly outlines the case in law for getting answers. And I think the whole thing that you mentioned, the discovery, um, the process of a lawsuit and a legal challenge where the, the submi- you know, submitting facts in a court of law under oath to obtain data, was a very important uh, pre-trial procedure uh, in a lawsuit in which each party, uh, through the law of civil procedure, can obtain evidence from the other party or parties by means of discovery uh, devices such as interrogations or requests uh, for production of documents. So hopefully this will gain traction because if for some reason, listeners, you don't hear any more about this, um, I, th- I, would, I would be seriously worried because... It's like science, and again, I keep saying this, the, the shows that we do with you, Dr. P, and I know you're very scientific, you have lots of um, information about um, what it is you're talking about, you can cite references, it's not just hearsay, um, and like this investigation into what's happened with this approach to this you know, supposed deadly disease that's scaring, you know, ravaging the world, I think there's got to be 
questions asked and answers given. And I think that the the, the law the law is the next um, the next uh, place you know in which this can be played out. So if we don't hear too much about this and it all goes quiet. Uh, I'd be thinking along the lines of more conspiratorial reasons, because there's no reason why it shouldn't. The uh, interview with the three uh, uh, declaration uh, uh, pretenders uh, uh, were uh, they were taken off some of the uh, uh, public uh, uh, websites and uh, denounced. Uh, Fauci, uh, for example, uh, said that it was nonsense that uh, shouldn't be attended to. Uh, but what, what they were saying was that, uh, that these are uh, scientifically uh, determinable questions and that people should be discussing them. Uh, science isn't uh, uh, something that's declared from headquarters. It's something that has to be determined uh, by examining the evidence. That's all the declaration is, is calling for. And, and, and this uh, is worldwide, too. It's scientists all over the world. Yeah, and um, looking at the issue of what natural immunity has been uh, throughout history, that uh, the human race got here without vaccination, and uh, so something was uh, keeping us alive throughout history, uh, other than vaccines and antiviral drugs. But uh, within hours after the uh, declaration became public, and especially uh, the news that they had been uh, interviewed by uh, high uh, government officials in the White House, uh, there, there was a huge publicity campaign denouncing them, and uh, the, I, I think it's probably in the end constructive that they're saying uh, on uh, NPR, for example, uh, probably uh, even worse things on, on other channels, but uh, there were supposed experts uh, denying that there is such a thing as natural immunity implying that everyone would be dead if it weren't for vaccinations. Uh, and to well, say something as, as outrageous as uh, there is no natural immunity, uh, uh, that's going to show how crazy uh, that they can get at the top. Was Fauci trying to say there's no natural immunity? No, he, he wasn't one of those. He just said it's all nonsense. Don't pay any attention to it. Well, did... Um, they announced who those health officials at the White House were? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, the head of uh, uh, Health and Human Services uh, and uh, 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 Trump's uh, personal health uh, uh, expert. Uh, uh, do the, Dr. Vosteopathy? Uh, Dr. Atlas, uh, uh, a brain imaging specialist. Uh, so they were uh, saying, what does he know? Uh, because he isn't a, a virologist. Uh, and uh, even though the three people who made the dec declaration uh, were all epidemiology professors, uh, right. the, uh, the opposition <laughs> is saying, well, it wasn't the right kind of 
of epidemiology. Oh my goodness. Well, then you need to say, look at what's the motive. Yep. What is their motive? Why is that team wanting to debunk it? Okay, so um, I wanted to touch on, and I wanted to ask you a question about one of the uh, one of the herbs. Uh, in terms of what seems to be the most, well, I guess let's start with the very beginning, that if this is just a regular pneumonia, that in a very small subset of the population can become a serious uh, cytokine storm issue. There's lots of different herbs that have been used for pneumonia, um, whether they're uh, either immune stimulants or antivirals, uh, or if they are uh, anti-inflammatories, and I know uh, I just wanted to bring to the attention of people who perhaps haven't heard this before, but um, things like Baikal skullcap is a Chinese herb containing what they recognize as the active constituent called Baikalin. Um, they've got evidence here, uh, and you can look at it on PubMed, uh, and you can see this online for as a peer-reviewed um, you know, statement that um, these, this anti-inflammatory uh, has been shown to calm this storm quite effectively, and that actually uh, has been used in the treatment of cytokine storm and is one of those things that they were pushing in uh, China in the early days, obviously part of their pharmacy. And then wild indigo root and both that and pleurisy root um, have been used for pneumonias uh, for a long, long time. Um, so both of these two are well indicated in pneumonias, and I'm talking about where people are really getting quite sick and they're getting into breathing difficulty, maybe not the cytokine storm that the uh, bicow skullcat would be useful for, um, but just the regular pneumonias, and then obviously echinacea and elderberry uh, have their own value in an, as an antiviral. But um, I wanted to also mention that licorice root and um, the uh, ginsenicide RB1 from Panax, uh, gins, uh, Panax ginseng, the Korean ginseng, uh, are well indicated, and then there's astragalus also, which has got good value uh, as a supportive uh, adaptogen. Now, I wanted to ask you a question, Dr. Pete, because I think you're fairly familiar with this herb, um, but ephedra uh, from the deserts of the southwest, we, we, for the longest time before it was banned uh, in the States, even though it's you know, totally uh, available in Europe and in England, uh, we used it for asthma and, um, you know, had very good results with it as a good bronchodilator. Um, and I've been told by uh, doctors in New York uh, that recommended um, this for bronchodilation, and they said that ephedra uh, would be a very effective herb, and I've had uh, people using and practicing uh, in New York, but I don't think they could get this um, product uh, from the States, but um, been used in the treatment of shortness of breath and uh, respiratory kind of um, distress. I know it's a sympathetic stimulant, and I know it has been abused as a weight loss um, supplement, which is why it was pulled off the market. I think maybe some people were getting into cardiac difficulty with it at high doses. Um, but what do, you, what do you know about ephedra? I learned about it first from my grandmother when I was about four and was having migraine-like symptoms, and she made ephedra tea, and it gave me relief. It wasn't a cure, but it definitely stopped the nausea and was very, very welcome to use any time I had a digestive or migraine-like episode. I mean, knowing what you know about physiology and sympathetic stimulants, do you think uh, 
there's a uh, there's a merit behind it as a bronchodilator in in um, in the va- in, in the treatment of something that is a, definitely an inflammatory mediated process that affects the lungs. Uh, I think it would be reasonable uh, to assume, but you know more about the physiology perhaps than. I, I, once when I was having an asthma attack, I, I tried one of the uh, antihistamine uh, popular over-the-counter uh, drugs, and it, it made me sleepy and, and didn't relieve the, uh, the bronchial uh, constriction. Uh, but it didn't. Uh, ephedra uh, is very effective. It, uh, it doesn't make you uh, have the double problem of tending to go to sleep while you're not able to breathe. Right. So it, it does make you very wakeful, uh, but it yeah. uh, uh, relaxes uh, uh, and reduces the inflammation in the, the, the bronchial tubes. So we have a couple callers. Okay, well, let's take... I think what we're going to do as well this time around, um, we'll take the calls and we'll take them off the air. Um, let's take this first caller. Okay, first actually, caller. I, had, I had one quick question because you're talking about... Uh, Okay. Herbological and antihistamines or anti-inflammatories. Would you include turmeric as a useful one in this sort of use? Well, it's definitely it's definitely an anti-inflammatory. Yeah, but if we, uh, I think if we're talking about respiratory anti-inflammatories, it's probably not one one that I would first think of. I would be thinking more things that act act or are excreted through the lungs uh, and have a direct action that way. Another thing I want to mention before we take a caller is that. When you have a cold and you have the runny nose and the runny eyes and you just feel horrible and you're hot and you have a fever and then you start getting the chest tightness, that's all because of your immune system being very, very inflamed. And a lot of the herbs, overactive, it's trying to do its job, it's trying to make it the antibodies, and a lot of the herbs that help treat flu and have been used for thousands of years to treat flu and viral conditions are anti-inflammatory and that's how they help. And then the last thing I want to say before the caller um, joins us is ephedra, I think, is very effective, and it's great for acute situations, so short-term use. I don't think it's something any of us, the three of us, would recommend for long-term use because it does stimulate so much adrenaline. Yeah. Uh, One other perspective on flu-like symptoms. uh, uh, In experiments with dogs uh, uh, around 19... 20 or 25, uh, Walter Alvarez uh, found that uh, the first inflammation caused by uh, the flu-like viruses uh, occurred in the intestine, uh, and all of the symptoms uh, were at the peak uh, while the intestine was infected, but there were no viruses in the respiratory system yet, uh, showing that inflammation of the bowel releases uh, uh, things like serotonin and histamine that cause systemic inflammation, uh, can even cause edema of the lungs uh, and uh, uh, deranged uh, vasoconstriction and uh, dilation uh, and uh, uh, all of the deadly uh, symptoms that we see associated with the, the COVID virus as well as influenza and other respiratory infections. These are all made worse by the intestinal 
signals uh, from histamine and serotonin. That's why we always recommend people use cascara when they get a cold or a cough or a flu. Clean, yeah. your, clean your intestines out. That helps. They, they look at you with a, a kind of bemused expression, but as you, as you say and you state, this, the seat of it really is in the gut. And so I think a lot of work has been done recently to show this in a very scientific sense so that people can understand the gut um, connection. So cascara sagrada, um, definitely one of those things to be indicated there as a, uh, uh, something to it, it, it decrease the transit time and to uh, improve bowel motility and to uh, promote the uh, excretion of contents from the bowel with all the waste so that you don't reabsorb it. I think that's the, the rationale. So I, have we got the caller there? Are we still on the air with the caller? Engineer, are you there? Caller right, is there. <laughs> caller, are you, you there? there? Do, we, do we have a caller on the air? Yes, I believe so. Caller, are you still there? Okay. Hi, is this me? Yes. Hey, caller, where are you from and what's your question? Oh, yes. Hi. I'm from the East Coast. Uh, and my question is, um, uh, I'm curious about how different people can interpret the, the same stimuli. And more specifically, I've noticed that I will notice something um, like a smell or particular type of substance. And I, I can tell that I'm not reacting well to it. it it's not like it renders me um, incompetent at, at doing things, but I can tell it's probably better off if I avoid it or something. But then there are people who don't notice it at all. So my question is, those people, are they in a better state by not noticing it? And are they just handling it really well? Or is it kind of like a frog in a, a pot of boiling water where it's doing them harm and they just can't tell? Yeah, I go along with the second uh, description. But Dr. P, what do you think about that uh, subjective or um, analytical interpretation of someone knowing they're uh, feeling something. I always ascribe it to the, the, the ephedra situation, uh, sorry, the echinacea situation. I've had it many times if I just feel some dry scratchiness in my throat and I use ephedra, I definitely don't get... Echinacea. Uh, echinacea, sorry. I definitely don't get um, uh, come, come down with the symptoms, but I know that there are people who blindly just they're not in touch with their bodies. And when you question them about some things, they suddenly, it's like a light bulb goes off and they recognize what you're talking about. But um, Dr. P, what do you think about that kind of mind-body connection as a question? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, excitation uh, from something like ephedra can either uh, push your system into the anti-inflammatory condition or it can uh, exhaust it more and uh, exacerbate the problem. Uh, my orientation comes from uh, work of uh, Pavlov uh, in the, the mostly in the 1920s, uh, in which he found that the strong-minded dogs, uh, the, the ones with uh, strong personalities that uh, didn't experience stress easily, he found that their sensory thresholds were high uh, even for hearing. Uh, their hearing was less acute than the more uh, unstable animals. Uh, and uh, uh, castration would make one of these 
strong, stable, resilient animals. Castration would turn them into a sensitive individual because it it lowered their cellular energy. But uh, with females that were uh, anxious and oversensitive, uh, had a low hearing threshold, uh, were uh, easily disturbed by uh, minor uh, irritants and and stimuli, Uh, castrating, uh, removing their ovaries, would strengthen their uh, personality, uh, would make them resist stress. Uh, And uh, he uh, demonstrated that uh, the androgens uh, generally keep up uh, uh, cellular energy uh, and estrogen uh, pushes uh, uh, the energy level down uh, and increases excitability so that, uh, for example, a pregnant or a nursing woman becomes very sensitive to unusual smells or very weak sounds, while breastfeeding a woman has exaggerated sensitivity to very small sounds. And Pavlov didn't study the issue, but progesterone is... The, uh, the healthy female's balancing factor uh, for, for progesterone, for, for estrogen, uh, where in the male, uh, it, it's the androgens that are the main uh, uh, stabilizing factors. So do you think the people that don't notice the smell and aren't bothered by it, it's just because they have more stabilizing hormonal profile uh, and they actually aren't being bothered by it? Uh, uh, in the average situation, I, I think that's so. And that's, of course, you're talking about, like, breathing VOCs off of paint or something. Yeah. <laughs> the people who can't smell it doesn't mean okay. it's not hurting them. No. Okay, you're listening to Ask Your Dr. K. Moody Garberville, 91.1 FM. From now until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, uh, you're invited to call in with questions. So Dr. Raymond P. guest uh, speaker with us tonight. Uh, the number is uh, 707 923-3911. And here's our next caller. Great. Okay, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Oops, they didn't wait too long. Oh, somebody's calling back. They're going to come right on the air. Okay, we'll hold it for a second. Kmud, you're on the air. Great. Um, good evening. I have two questions. My first question is, uh, could you please give me some information on the PCR test for COVID-19? And my second question is, what is your opinion of the mad rush to, uh, the mad global rush to develop a COVID-19 vaccine? I, I didn't hear the second question clearly. Oh, uh, she wanted to know about the mad rush to a COVID, the worldwide mad rush to a COVID uh, oh, vaccine. Oh. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, first first question. Uh, uh, could you repeat that? 
I'm sorry I just dropped her because we're trying to keep the lines open and we're all full of the lines. But the first half uh, was about the oh, caller. You can call back with the first half, but she wanted to know about the uh, rush, the global rush to a vaccine and what you thought about that. Um, it's obviously pushed by the pharmaceutical industry. The There's a military-dominated secret organization in charge of issuing contracts worth many billions of dollars to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it's an organization that is not open to the public in any way. It's specifically closed like a military project. And our caller's back for the first question. Hi, um, can you hear me? Uh, the, Hello. Uh, the, the first question I understood was about what test is good or if the PCR test. Yes, the, P, the PCR test for COVID-19. Uh, I was hoping you could give me some information. Um, yeah, it, it will uh, identify a, a single... A strand of the nucleic acid. If you start with the right evidence, if you really have the virus, and then you design your test based on a real strand, any fragment of the RNA of the virus is multiplied. Normally, they only put it through 35 cycles of amplification. But in these current tests, some of them are going 45 cycles, which would give an extremely unrealistic idea. A single molecule could look like a haystack of molecules. Uh, so it, it can detect uh, of the presence of something uh, regardless of, of whether it's harmful. Uh, it, it could be as little as a single molecule. But uh, there are now tests called uh, rapid antigen uh, tests uh, that uh, use a traditional uh, group of antigens uh, associated with the virus and a traditional chemical indicator uh, representing uh, uh, causing a color change uh, in the presence of the antigens. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the sample can be uh, put on a, a, a chip uh, in which these uh, uh, antigens uh, are, are reacted, uh, and in 15 minutes they can... Uh, show the presence uh, of uh, antigens in uh, probably a, a reasonable uh, amount, indicating that there uh, was some degree of infection, where the PCR test doesn't uh, show any realistic quantity. Antigen test is much more accurate. Is that what your opinion is, Dr. B? Uh, I didn't hear that. That the PCR test is highly inaccurate? 
uh, not inaccurate, but just uh, unrealistic because it uh, can't distinguish between uh, one molecule and a trillion molecules. Okay, and then the uh, caller did have another question uh, about your uh, your personal opinion here of uh, the rush to develop a vaccine. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a, a secretive process dominated by the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and it's based on uh, the, the idea that uh, even though uh, from the, the 1970s, uh, experts in the CDC uh, realized and expressed publicly uh, the, the fact that uh, it so far has been impossible to make an effective influenza virus, uh, and there's no evidence that a coronavirus vaccine uh, uh, can, be, can be made any easier than an influenza uh, vaccine. Yep, okay. All right, I wanted to make sure we get time to discuss this, um, Dr. P. I'm not sure if there are any more callers first. Um, engineer? Nope. Okay, so the number, if you're in, uh, in or out of the area, is 707-986-923-3911. I'm not sure where my head is tonight, uh, but I'll try and get back into these facts. Um, Lee Men Yan, we uh, mentioned her name, uh, whistleblower, uh, PhD, virologist, um, a, an expert in her field. She was interviewed by uh, Tucker Carlson a month ago uh, as a headlining uh, Chinese virologist who's blowing the cover on SARS-CoV-2, saying that it was definitely manufactured in a lab, uh, citing all of the genomic uh, differences and citing information to show that this was not a natural or naturally uh, occurring virus and that it was actually a released virus uh, from a laboratory. So um, that interview with Tucker Carlson has since been fact-checked, as we are uh, talking about this evening, the uh, furious fact-checkers want to debunk it. Um, again, now, just as in the uh, emperor has no clothes scenario, uh, Li Men Yang has come out with a second paper with other co-authors, scientific co-authors, uh, and it's titled uh, A Truth Revealed by Uncovering a Large-Scale Scientific Fraud. Uh, the article and the evidence is available by logging into wearechange.org. It's a secure website, so its full URL is https colon wearechange.org under the column there's three columns when you look at the page. Uh, and the middle column, International World, Loo World News. And incidentally, in the same column above the link uh, that you can look at for her second paper um, is David Navarro, World Health Official, yeah, the World Health Organization official, uh, talking about not using lockdowns as a primary control method and stating the global economic catastrophe of lockdown. So anyway, um, this uh, scientist is providing spot-by-spot spot proof that this is a manufactured uh, organism, uh, the way it's been changed, uh, and everything that's detailed about it. And so, again, of course, uh, it's been fact-checked, I think, fairly quickly, just like the Great Barrington Declaration was fact-checked quickly because I think the 
fear that is around the expose of this with the world no longer in the dark, but um, able to sift through the information that they're shown, there is truth amongst it. And so, uh, Dr. Pete, um, again, what, what are your views on this being used, you know, whatever, maybe for good purposes originally, but maybe it got uh, escaped the lab and has basically caused the problem, or whether or not this truly may just be part of the next step in a type of... Uh, Geneva Convention uh, defying a type of bio bioweapon uh, for economic purposes. Leading journals, including Lancet and Nature, uh, as far back, well, uh, for example, in 2015, uh, they were discussing uh, the research, uh, gain-of-function research to make viruses infective and virulent in humans which were previously strictly animal viruses. And they cite the research, for example, by Ralph Berrick's virology lab at the University of North Carolina. But it actually goes back decades. But the particular coronavirus adapted to attack the ACE uh, ACE2 enzyme uh, on humans uh, was designed in Ralph Berrick's lab uh, in uh, uh, leading up to uh, the, the moratorium, uh, which led to the discussion in 2015. And it was that information uh, that uh, Fauci uh, took, breaking the moratorium, uh, violating the moratorium and taking the research information uh, at least to Wuhan, maybe to other foreign labs where the, the uh, moratorium uh, couldn't be enforced. Uh, so Fauci and Ralph Berrick uh, really are uh, closer uh, to the core of the problem. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard, to, hard to imagine um, a greater a greater type of uh, worldwide conspiracy, but uh, that's what I that's what I enjoy about um, finding information and looking at the science behind it because science is objective and it doesn't seek to uh, mislead. It doesn't seek to uh, look at untruth, but seeks to find the truth in the situation. And so that information could be built on to help people. And I think, obviously, I know you are and I am definitely interested in the truth um, and wanting to do the right thing in any given situation. So I, th I find it quite interesting, the, uh, the comments made by the um, Ohio lawyer who's um, now got access to um, the discovery process to bring uh, people to court to answer for what it is that they are saying, doing, or uh, advocating. Uh, in terms of this COVID pandemic. And he said that within the CDC's own documents, it said that um, to support high levels of fear and anxiety within the population uh, necessary to support compliance. And this was for flu vaccinations. And I think um, they've been a real bone of contention for a long time. I've met quite a few people who said, well, within 24 hours of getting a flu vaccine, I started getting really sick. Uh, or people that have said, yeah, I had the flu vaccine and I got the flu. And I know you've said 
it's such a changeable virus that it can change its genome fairly easily in very small parts to make itself in, not indistinguishable. But uh, and, and a large like, series of studies, uh, very good large studies, found that the year after an influenza vaccination, uh, the chance of getting a coronavirus infection is greatly increased. Uh, so the, the uh, a lot of people, uh, college presidents, for example, are requiring uh, incoming students uh, to get a flu vaccination, uh, uh, contrary to the, the existing research that it will make them more likely to catch a coronavirus. Interesting. Well, um, I think there is another caller, but I'm, I, I just dropped them. I told them if you guys didn't get to them by five yeah. till. So yeah. Okay. Call well, back earlier we, next we, time. Yeah, we've only got four minutes or less at this point in time, so not even that. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think Dr. P, I'll thank you very much for joining us and um, presenting what you've presented for people to hear both now and as the recording in the audio archives for posterity, as well as on our own website under the resources tab. Uh, everything that we've done with you, uh, apart from the last couple of months, is up. Uh, thanks so much for your time, and I'll give out some information about you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, so for those people who have listened to the show, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete's website is www.raypeat.com. It has lots of articles fully referenced, and he's been doing this for several decades now, um, and very well worth reading. Some of it it might be a little difficult for people who don't have um, any real medical background, um, but otherwise the, uh, the gist of what he's saying and the reasons for and against with the science is uh, hard to refute. Um, our website is www.westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Um, we can be reached Monday through Friday. Uh, we have a 888 number, 1888 WBMHerb, uh, so that we can be contacted. And if people want any other information about what we've mentioned in the show with links to the references that we've made for the people who are claiming what they're claiming, uh, go ahead and email me, andrew, at westernbotanicalmedicine.com, and I'll happily send you the references for it. Um, so we're living in a society, folks, that are rapidly, uh, say the word evolving, I'm not too sure it's the right word, but um, rapidly gaining knowledge. I think that is definitely a true thing. And so the Internet is definitely a means for disseminating knowledge. Um, and we do these shows just to bring out the facts. And so people, go check the information yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, and don't forget, people I mentioned about not submitting to authority unquestionably. Uh, that's been the downfall of Germans in World War II. It's been the downfall of many people in many different times when dictators decide to take the reins and people... Uh, unquestioning about it. Anyway, um, we'll be back next third Friday of the month, uh, November uh, the 20th. So for those of you listening to the show, I appreciate you calling in and listening. And once again, if people want to listen to this uh, online, the audio archives at kmud.org are where they're kept. So go to kmud.org, go to the audio archives. The show is Friday Night Talk. Uh, and then uh, the third Friday of the month, or go to our website under the resources tab and listen to the shows there. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.
Comedy for a Change is KMUD's comedy show, hosted by local comedian Jason Robo. Listen Saturdays at 2 a.m. for a couple hours of socially conscious, thought-provoking humor. Comedy for a Change will feature some of the biggest names in comedy, as well as local up-and-coming comics. That's Saturday at 2 a.m. here on KMUD. Speaking of KMUD, it's 7.59. We are KMUD. KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka, KLAI Laytonville. Get ready to step out on a wing and a prayer with Shaka and Shyla coming up next.